there's there's a mistake that you can make very easily in an open source project, and that's to include too many things, right? You're doing this for free, and that's why I got onto the you know the question of why do we do open source, right? You're doing this free stuff, and a lot of times it's mm-hmm. just like, hey, I'm trying to show off. But um, uh, in my case, I was looking at, all right, what are we going to need, right? Well, we're going to need some sort of, we're going to need some UI widgets, and we're going to need some routing, and we're going to need this, we're going to need that, we're going to we're going to be doing forms, right? I was thinking through all of the things that. You know, when you when you have a team, one of the things that, that can really help a team stay productive is to give them the patterns, right? A lot of people aren't autodidactic. They don't teach themselves very well. And if you're already asking them to use a new programming language and a new way of doing things and a, right, a new uh, you right. Know, non-imperative uh, uh, approach, you better show them how to do most of what they need to do, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have them inventing how they're going to manage a form, right? You can't have them inventing how they're going to do uh, a particular UI widget. Um, I mean, ideally, you let them use some off-the-shelf library uh, UI widget. Um, so, so when I first started on the project, I was really trying to think through what do my teams need in terms of pre-written things so that they can see the pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, I wrote a, a set of Bootstrap wrappers. So you wouldn't have to use the Bootstrap JS. They actually were written in Fulcro and used real, you know, immutable data, and right, they were just like stateful components, uh, mm-hmm. and a bunch of other things. I don't, I don't even remember what all uh, we built that I essentially just threw away. <laughs> just like, okay, this is a bad idea. I want a community to do that, right? Or, mm-hmm. or preferably, I want npm uh, to give me some decent stuff to do that with because that's just it's too expensive, right? You can't build mm-hmm. every drop down and yeah, it's just, it's, it's madness. Um, yeah. But it was tempting because it was like this whole new way of doing UIs and there wasn't a lot out there to do it with. And so it was very tempting mm-hmm. to say, hey, I want a controlled component. I want to control it. You know, I want it to be, right. you know, proper reactive functional, you know, thing. I don't want to pull in that hairball of JavaScript and let it do it. Um, and, you know, it's like, all right, at the end of the day, I'll pull in there. Terrible <laughs> of job. Yeah. Do it. yeah. So, so I did make the mistake early on of just doing too much. Uh, at the time, I was working for a company that was, that was, you know, paying me a salary and we were open sourcing this. So, um, uh, you know, there was, there was some I could get away with writing something right. and not have to do the accounting um, of it. But then once I took it over, you know, myself as an individual developer, then it became obvious. Oh, right. Yeah. These, some of these things were just, they were fine for what we were doing there because that's what, that's exactly what we're going to use, but I don't want to maintain a bootstrap wrapper. That's not my job, right? That's not what I want right. to do for the community. It's not interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I deprecated a lot of those things and, and they've since gone by the wayside. The source code's still out there somewhere and they're certainly probably somewhat usable and you could revive them, but, um, but I, right. you know, there's this, uh, there's this balance that the, I feel like the closure and closure script community leans in, in really hard in one direction. And I sort of lean in the middle. I feel like mm-hmm. in the middle. Um, we've got this small versus big problem, right? Should your library mm-hmm. be small and focused or should it be big and address some unified concern? And, mm-hmm. you know, I've been doing this for over 30 years. Uh, I've worked in you know Java projects with million plus lines of code. 
I've seen, you know, the hibernates and the springs and the, right, these big monolith things that are just so heavy and they slow mm-hmm. you down and they get in your way and they annoy you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they actually hurt your sustainable development, right? If you're a big enough company and you can be a lot of teams and don't mind the fact that they do, you know, six lines of code a day, uh, uh, all right, if that's your definition of sustainability, then fine. Right. It, certainly there are teams out there that can use these big things and, and make progress. I, I have a talk that I, I, I would give at companies about why you don't want to use uh, uh, an ORM. Right. I just find mm-hmm. they're just like an anti-pattern in every single kind of database thing that you want to do. They hurt you. Um, mm-hmm. And yet they're super popular. People make good software with them and, you know, they struggle, but uh, they know it and it mm-hmm. works for them. And that's fine. But I understand the closure. So I guess what I'm getting at is I understand the closure community's tendency toward, I don't want the big hairball. I don't want the big thing. The big thing is, is a danger, right? right? To the point, though, that they have blinders on. They, they won't even look at the bigger thing. Um, mm-hmm. they, they only want the, the kind of library that just does one very small, minimalistic, focused thing. Yeah, I also noticed that. So I also feel like we talk a lot about the simple and easy, but very often it's actually not the simple easy, it's just minimalistic. Right. Yeah. Right. It's just minimalistic. Mm-hmm. And as an open source developer, I can understand uh, that also as a desire, right? Like, oh, I got, you know, 300 lines of code. It's done, right? I, I, I finished. Right. Maybe I'll have to touch it sometime in the future when, you know, Closure adds a feature or something or changes something or mm-hmm. whatever, right? It's unlikely I'm going to have yeah. to touch it. Um, that's very appealing. Uh, you know, we have lives, <laughs> we have jobs, uh, you know, uh, maintaining yeah. something, something large just doesn't make sense for a lot of people. So being minimalistic tends to also equate an open source to quality, right? If it's something small, then a single developer, which is what most of these projects are, can manage to make it decent. Uh, and mm-hmm. keep it decent without killing themselves over it. So I think it's mm-hmm. a perfectly sane question to ask, oh, well, if that thing's big and it's not like this thing that I have to pay for, I'm just getting it for free, uh, is that going to stay around? Uh, is it actually debugged well? Is somebody paying attention to it? Um, mm-hmm. It's a reasonable question to ask. But that that's a different question than is it, well-designed? Does it meet my needs? Does it fit Mm -hmm. the model of development that I want to do? Mm -hmm. Um, And if you've got the blinders on because it just happens to have a lot of features, you know, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's perfectly, perfectly reasonable to have caution, right? Um, (laughs) With that said, what's included in Fulcro? Right. So um, (laughs) quite a few things. Um, you know, there are 16 different, I think, repositories that I maintain related to Fulcro. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, if I were just like, you know, listing off the the repositories, some of these repositories are like, you know, demo repository, that yeah. type of thing. But right. uh, there's Fulcro itself, which is the central library. There's the developer's guide, which is the 500-page book. There's uh, a rapid application development toolkit. Uh, there mm-hmm. are plugins for the Rapid Application tool- Toolkit for talking to SQL databases and Datomic databases. There's an internationalization library. Uh, there's uh, 
uh, semantic UI plugin for the rapid application development tools. I maintain mm -hmm. a fork of ghost wheel I call guardrails that helps you basically just get kind of a runtime type system sort of help. Helps you just like see errors as you're working, uh, but very lightweight sort of uh, sort of help. Uh, it doesn't get in your way much. Uh, we've got a full-blown you know, Chrome plugin that also will build as an Electron uh, uh, tool for inspecting Fulcro apps that are running, uh, mm -hmm. which we actually use on, on one of our projects in a production setting. Uh, we've got a React Native app that runs Fulcro um, that does some critical stuff, and there's actually a, you know, a special thing you can do on the screen that will actually turn on it, it connecting to uh, an NGROC WebSocket port so we can get, you know, so we can connect to it with the, the electron inspect tool and see what's going on inside. Um, mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, it's, it's, it's uh, kind of a neat, neat little tool. There's a WebSockets library. Uh, there's a template for building native apps. Uh, there's some BDD testing, you know, little utilities that, that I've got. Uh, there's mm -hmm. co-located component CSS. So if you want to, you know, co-locate CSS rules with a, a component, so you, you know, you can have those like namespaced and just auto, you know, populate in the browser when you mount the components. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of little, little libraries. Uh, most of those are fairly small, like the WebSockets libraries, I don't know, it's 150, 200 lines of code. It uses Sente, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. just enough to give you the wrapper so that you can just drop it into Fulcro and have it work, mm -hmm. um, both the server side and client side. Um, so, so there's those. And then if we're talking about, well, now we could talk about each individual library uh, for, you know, any amount of time. Um, but right. if we're talking about Fulcro, we just just start there because that's the, the base core library. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's talking about how I started out with, oh, you know, let's have the widgets and the components and the this, that, and the other thing. And I, I rethought that. Mm -hmm. um, and so where I, where I went from there is when I provide a namespace, I, I've got one of two things in mind. One is okay. the really are core utility functions that everybody's going to need. Uh, so for example, one namespace that comes to mind is I've got these uh, uh, normalization helpers. Um, I've also got data targeting, normalization, denormalization, and dealing with the normalized database. There are things you commonly want to do there that everybody's just going to write the same functions. Right. And, you know, why have 10 people write them and half of them are buggy when, you know, we just write them once, test them and have them and, you know, people can trigger <laughs> patches if there are bugs. So things like, for example, in a normalized database, sometimes you want to delete something. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, you've got the full stack problem of, well, am I deleting it locally only in my UI or is my deleting it full stack? But then you've got the further concern of if I'm only deleting it locally in the UI because I'm just trying to GC things so that JavaScript doesn't complain that I'm making things too big in memory. Um, mm -hmm. is it safe to delete that? Are other things pointing to it? It's a normalized database, right? So, so there could mm -hmm. be any number of other entities in your normalized database with pointers to that thing that you're trying to remove. Mm -hmm. So, so you being able to, like, I can't automatically do that for you, right? So when you, when you say remove that from the table, well, I can remove that from the table, but I'm not going to cascade delete that through your graph, right? Mm -hmm. I, I don't want right. to try to do that analysis. Um, you might even have something in component local state I don't know about. I just it's not a safe operation, but I can give you a tool, say you know, remove entity, where you can tell me and follow these edges. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Where then I can trust you on your kind of cascaded delete instruction, um, and it's a straightforward route. So there's there's namespaces like that uh, that mm -hmm. just help you manipulate your data. Um, you know, you've got the the data fetch, which is the the central load 
mechanism. And it's focused around the things Fulcro can do for you in terms of data fetch, right? It can mm-hmm. normalize things. It can, it can re it can, um, not reshape your graph, but it can target the incoming subgraph to some position in your current graph database, right? So conceptually, like when you've got a normalized database, you have a whole bunch of trees you could pull out of there that are, are you know, graphs on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you, when, you, when you go with the tree, right, you eventually end up at, at leaves. Technically, your database could have loops in it, right? It's a graph database. A graph can have loops. Mm-hmm. Right? A tree can't, right? Trees just, you know, end at leaves. So right. there are tools in Fulcro for pulling out trees. Um, and when you think about that graph as a true graph, sometimes you want to insert a new tree starting at some particular node in that graph, right? So that's data targeting. Um, mm-hmm. I want to target and normalize this thing I just loaded into that thing, or this thing that just came across a WebSocket message, or this thing that you know just happened because of some timeout that calculated this new graph, right? Mm-hmm. So these are common operations that you want to do to the database. I've got this. It's really easy for me to think in the tree. I'll make the tree, and then I'll tell Fulcro, put that in the database over there. Mm-hmm. So so that's you know a decent number of the utilities are just that. They're they're library functions that help you do those kinds of operations. Mm-hmm. So then take it up a level <clears throat> uh, to something like uh, form state. So there's a form state namespace, and this is one that I have a, a different philosophy on. So as I said, I started this off with saying I have kind of two views. One is <laughs> these kind of core functions. Another is, well, you know what? I should establish a pattern that people could follow that will work for a lot of people but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say it's like the authoritative only way to do this, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna show you. Here's an idea I had for how to do this that has these following features, and if that satisfies your needs, great. And if it doesn't, well, extend it, send me a PR, or write your own, right? So mm-hmm. form state is one that that I kind of think about in in that sense. I can give you kind of the the library author's view of here's kind of your minimal case of what you're gonna need. Right. What do you want to do with forms? Well, you want to load it. Once it's in memory, you probably want to remember what was in it before the user started editing it. Right? Mm-hmm. You want to take a snapshot because you might want them to be able to say cancel. And if they say cancel, okay. they were just editing a normalized database. And so the things they made changes to would be reflected in your UI still, unless you were able mm-hmm. to undo them. Right. This isn't mm-hmm. like you're not you're not leveraging the mutation of the input. You're actually controlling the input. So it's in your real state. Right. You've got to be able to back up. So you need you need sort of this time travel capability, right? So, so yeah. you'd be able to snapshot that. And you probably want to just snapshot the pieces of the thing you loaded that are editable. Right. So if I load, I could have a form on screen where my graph query asked for a bunch of crap that's not editable. It's like view only, right? Like mm-hmm. you're, not, you're not an admin. You can see this stuff, but you can't edit it, right? Right. So this component that's acting as your form needs to be able to say, oh, well, you know, A, B, and C are the things you can edit here. And so that's that's all we're going to snapshot for you, right? Mm-hmm. So the library namespace that I'm providing is doing the data management. It's letting you say, here's the data that's that I want you to manage, and ignore all the other stuff that's in there. Right. Um, take a snapshot of it for me. Let me know if any of it's dirty, 
right? Have they, have they yeah. changed any of it? Let me know if they've interacted with any of it. So it's actually a tri-state system where I keep a, a, a set of fields that are considered mm -hmm. done. And you actually have to tell the system when you're done with it. Yeah. The idea behind I'm not that, sure. Right? Yeah, go ahead. No, I just want to say, I, I'm not sure if I would call this form state namespace a minimalistic from what you're just saying, because I think all of those things are pretty hard to do. Um, just Agreed. to keep the That's state. Why if, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. I, but you call it minimalistic. It's like a minimal set. I would say no, because all of this stuff, it takes a lot of energy to make it right. Right, but it's it to me, it's the minimum set of features you need to I do see. a form in Fulcro. I see. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. But you could say, well, but forms shouldn't that have like formatting of fields? No. Right. I, I'm I'm not doing the rendering for you. You could be on React Native. Right. You could be on the web. You could write. Correct. So that's where you could take it. Right. You could take it to I'm going to do everything for forms for you. Right. It's going to be this big hairball of thing that. Yeah, you didn't like my CSS. Screw you. It's it's it, that's what it is, right? That that's not what form state is about. Form state is about what do you have to reason over in the data model, and how can I make that easier for you? So, so I believe validation is also included there, right? Correct, correct. That's what I was saying about the try state, right? There's the fields. Yeah. Uh, the field has is is pristine. It's not been changed, but it's also not been interacted with. Mm -hmm. So those are the three things that you can ask about a field. And so mm -hmm. when a field has been interacted with, and you define what that means, you literally have to say this field has been interacted with as a mutation. Because I don't mm -hmm. know, right? It could be you consider that on, on blur. It could be they've touched it so that it's on, on key down, whatever. Whatever your UI concern is that says they've interacted with that field, you tell form state they've interacted with that field. And now it will tell you whether or not it's valid or invalid. Mm -hmm. Right, so your validation kind of pops into existence for a field based on whether or not you've interacted with it. Mm -hmm. So that's essentially what form state does for you, and that's all it does for you. Um, it's mm -hmm. not trying to lay out the form for you. It's not trying to do rendering. Right. It's not trying to do life cycle. Right, you're still responsible for the life cycle. When does the form mm -hmm. start? When have they saved it? And when are you done with it? When do you just throw the crap out? That's all up to you, um, because those are things I can't automate for you. And, and really, in my opinion, shouldn't uh, automate. Yes, right. Yeah, I agree. I, then there's also um, probably the routing is one of the one of the other ones that comes up frequently in in people's early use of Fulcro. Right, that's a noob question. Uh, you know, how do I do my UI routing? I want to know how to do HTML5 routing. That's the first thing they try. <laughs> I want to do HTML5 routing in Fulcro. Oh my God, you've got to understand like six things about Fulcrum before you're going to have any chance of like understanding what you're doing. Like you've got to, you've got to get the normalization, the initial state, the query, the ident, understand that stuff first. They're not hard concepts. Uh, and it does most of the algorithmic work for you, but you do have to understand them. Um, and then you can understand dynamic routing. So for those of you who have followed well enough with, you've got a graph, you've got a graph query, it's normalized. Um, the dynamic routing namespace is similar to the form state namespace. Okay, so here's a concern that most people have. Um, you do it a little differently in, or you've got some abilities in Fulcro that actually give you some cool abilities that you don't really easily get in other UI, you know, front end sort of systems that they'll, they'll have to do it differently. So I'm not necessarily even saying what I'm doing is better um, in, in, any sort of universal way, I'm saying there's some cool features that can pop out that are Fulcro specific, 
And there are also some things that you might want for some other reasons that Fulcro doesn't do well, right? So I'm not trying to make any value judgment on how good my UI routing is. Um, I can tell you some cool things pop out. Um, so it's the same basic philosophy as form state. I don't know what you're rendering. I don't know if you're React Native, if you're using a web browser, whatever. Your concern is I want to show that component. That's really your concern. I want to show that component. And maybe I've got some sort of history mechanism, a browser URL or a, a, a browsing stack in a native device, right? I've got some some concept of history, maybe. Um, right. But I'm not, I, me personally, uh, I'm considering history as an orthogonal concern, right? You've got these external things, how you want to render it and how you want to track where you've been and where you are now, That that's kind of up to you. Um, what you're interested in, in, in my opinion, for this dynamic routing in Fulcro sense is, okay, what do I do <laughs> in Fulcro specifically to tell it, show that one now, now show this <laughs> other one, right? And have that be efficient and, and so on and so forth. Because one of the things that people run into with Fulcro that um, uh, surprises them in some sense, and I, in fact, I ran into it myself, right? I developed a model and then started writing software and ran into this problem and was like, oh, that's interesting. And so here's the problem. When you write um, a tree of UI and you connect the entire thing up as a graph, or it's really as a tree, right? That's on mm -hmm. top of a graph database. When you do a root render, well, you have to go and query the database for everything that's in that query, right? So, so now take that in the context of routing. So imagine a tree where you've got like all these branches going down to leaves. Right. And at some point you've got your router, right? Where you could switch between maybe five major branches and that's where all your, you've got one subtree, another sub, like five big subtrees and then a router's pretty high up, right? In that tree. And if what you do is say, I'm going to query first and then render everything, which is what Fulcro does, um, I'm going to query the database for everything the UI asks for. Well, if you look at that statically, well, the, the, the tree of the query isn't aware of which branch you're going to go down. It has to ask for everything, mm -hmm. right? So that, that query processing, um, uh, in, if you're not careful with what you do with your application implementation, asks for all of the data, turns that into a big tree uh, of nested maps, hands that to mm -hmm. the root component, and then logic in your renders picks it apart. And some of it doesn't even get used, right? You're just like, oh, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not going down that branch. I'm not going to use that. So there's a decent amount of wasted computation there, right? So if you're naive about it, uh, you're costing yourself a lot of like render overhead um, to render from root. Now, I don't know, mm -hmm. there are optimizations in Fulcro that make it so you don't have to render from root numerous optimizations that, that help you with that. But let's just assume that you're doing a keyframe style render and you're rendering from root. Um, that can make your application very, very slow if that's what, what you're doing. So what Fulcro has is dynamic queries. So at this thing that you're calling a router, which is really just a component that says, if I'm in this state, show that, else this, else this other thing. Right, mm -hmm. that's really all the logic is in, in, a, in a UI router. Right, it's just like I hold on to some state. You tell me which thing you want to show, and that's what I render. That, that's mm -hmm. a UI router. Right, they're really simple. Um, 
So in Fulcro, you have the added complexity or added concern of, I want to make sure that that router only queries for the stuff it's going to show. And so that's dynamic queries. So, mm -hmm. so supports the idea that at runtime, well, even statically, you can, because this is a function of this, the database, you actually store, well, here, let me back up a little bit. When you ask a component for its query, if you mm -hmm. ask it statically with no access to the database, it tells you exactly what's declared on it. But get query on a component actually takes an extra parameter that the internals of Fulcro always pass, and that's the database. And so you can actually store an override for the query in the database so that when you ask a component for its query, if it has an override in the database, it'll tell you that different answer, right? So dynamic routing in, in the, the routing system in Fulcro, one of the concerns it's trying to solve for you so you don't have to think about it is switching that query around so that you're only querying for the data you're interested in. I see. Right, just kind of automatically. So it um, does the heavy lifting for you. It does that heavy lifting. And then as I was building it, uh, and a couple form forms, the form state that we were just talking about and dynamic routing mm -hmm. both benefit from this thing that I was talking about earlier that some people look at and go, oh, that's just boilerplate. Why do I have to do that? Um, this composition mm -hmm. of the query, like, what is that about? Well, okay, think about that in the context of form state. Let's just regress for a minute and go back to form state. I was talking about very simple forms there, right? First name, last name, that kind of thing. Well, what if your person has a children? and addresses and right all these things are relations in the graph they might have it to mm -hmm. one they might have it to many you might want to add more of them um well now you're getting into a relatively complex state management problem right i want to save mm -hmm. the form but, but the form has three addresses and one of them's new and it has you know this that and the other thing and it's all these weird relations and such mm -hmm. form state the namespace when you initialize it it uses the query as introspection to, to go and find the literal components that are going to be used to render the sub, the children, and asks them, are you a form? Right, Because you can declare the form fields on the component in this extensible map of options you can give. And so the mm -hmm. form state can auto-discover through the query, right? because you don't have reified state yet. right? You've not even started the form yet. You've not loaded the thing you're going to edit. The query mm -hmm. is statically accessible information that can be you know, dynamically modified through the database, but but let's just think of it as the static information about what it's going to look like possibly, mm -hmm. right? And we can use that uh, uh, to do all sorts of interesting algorithms, right? This introspection information lets us traverse the, comp the real UI component graph and say, oh, what form fields are you using? Oh, what form fields are you using? Are you to one? Are you to many? And then when we want to do a save, so form state also supports a save operation, I can do that same introspection. And remember, I've got a snapshot of what it looked like when I loaded it. I can do that same thing to generate a normalized minimal diff of the save. Right. So what goes across the wire is you edited first name. That's the only field that's different out of all this subtree of stuff you loaded. That's the only thing that's different. I can send a vector that says in the person table at ID one, person name changed to blah. And that's all I sent. Because I can, mm -hmm. that's the only thing that changed. So, so from that co-located query and ident, I get normalization and then features start to pop out like this, right? Form state mm -hmm. suddenly do arbitrarily deeply nested, even recursive query nested forms where 
I can send a minimal diff to the server from what you edited on screen without you having to do any more computation. Mm -hmm. You just say, give mm -hmm. me the diff. And I can, I can use that introspection to find that diff. Dynamic UI mm -hmm. routing also benefits from this. So you define routers, and most people think of UI routing, they think of one like top-level thing that moves you from big chunk to big chunk to big chunk, and the URL changes, right? Right. That's often what they think of. Well, I look at a URL, and I go, well, that's a tree, right? You've got mm -hmm. a path with a subpath with a subpath. Well, at any point in that subpath, you might want another router, right? You might want some other, like, you want to, I want to plug two applications together. Those should be composable. Right, they should just compose. Right. So in the dynamic router system, what I've done, and again, this is just state management. There's 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 not a single reference to the DOM in dynamic routing. There's no rendering. Um, it's data management, um, and query management, um, and composition. So that's the other big thing that that people don't often think about when they're designing libraries is how will this thing compose with the other thing, you know, the other like things uh, mm -hmm. will it compose so in the dynamic routing system um, each router uh, you can you can think of like a slash in a url it's it's a point of inflection in the tree right mm -hmm. I can go down any path and you're going to tell me the very next thing you're going to tell me is which which path to go down right mm -hmm. and instead of having the router know what that list of paths are right i'd like it so that i could just tell the router oh well you route to the following six components and I could have the mm -hmm. components declare what their path name is, along with what additional parameters they might need. So for example, I might have a, a person form route who, whose route prefix is the string person, followed by a, a placeholder thing that says, and I need an ID here. Right? So now I've encapsulated in data the concept of a slash person slash three. Right? Mm -hmm. Now I'm not doing the string interpolation. I'm just saying, Here's the data. Here's here's the way of representing that concept of I want to go down the person path to person three. Now the dynamic routing code has just been handed literal components. Well, the components have extensible maps of options on them, so they can just say I'm this route, I'm this route, I'm this other route, and I can just compose them into that router. And mm -hmm. suddenly I've got automatic like I can take a string from the URL, break it into a vector pass it to the router, and the router knows where to go with that. Um, and then if I mm -hmm. want to refactor, I can move components to different routers, and their routes just move. And then if I want to still support aliases from old bookmarks that people might have had, well, on my translation function from the URL to that vector, I just put in aliases. Right. So, so go ahead. No, I just wanted to ask. So normally in any application, you would define your router, right? You would say, this is my tree using the analogy you used. It's like, I can go to, like you say, users one or persons slash one slash details slash whatever, edit. So how does this work with the dynamic router? How do you define that? Well, that, but that's my, that's my point is I'm not defining uh, how it how it has to work in terms of HTML5 routing, what I'm defining is a tree of routes mm -hmm. that can be easily mapped from uh, a string URL. So, so when you define a router, you're defining an inflection point. You're defining essentially, so if you want to think about it in terms of URLs, you're defining a slash in the path, yeah. that's a router, mm -hmm. right? And if you have a router that routes to A and then A has a router under it, 
-hmm. there's another slash, right? You're getting deeper in the, in the tree, right? So say, for example, I've got a, uh, a setting, uh, sorry, a top level router that routes to a setting screen and the setting mm -hmm. screen has six pages under it, right? Yeah. So you might imagine slash setting slash account slash mm -hmm. setting slash payments slash setting yeah. slash whatever. Um, each of those is a target under that router, right? Now a target might have under it another router. There's another slash, mm -hmm. right? So, so essentially uh, where I'm going with this is by composing your UI, you're automatically composing up your UI tree, or sorry, your routing tree. There's nothing, there's nothing else to declare. You don't have to have a separate map of something you maintain. Your router. You're literally able to build your routes by building your UI. And then mm -hmm. I can follow the query through introspection, right? I can just follow that query down the graph to find all of the targets and all of the routers um, mm -hmm. and discover things like if you want to say, uh, you know, how do I get to that screen over there, right? You could either start at root and just follow, you know, you could try to like search for it yourself. But at runtime, um, I can like do a, you know, a breadth first search of the query and find how do I get to that target and then assemble all the components that each, you know, each target in between says it is. I'm the settings. Okay, so settings is where we have to go first. I'm the this, I'm the that, I'm the other thing, right? And so, you know, again, I'm kind of trying to describe the routing system and make a point about the, the query and ident sort of stuff at the same time. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that, the availability of that query, it already gave me the power to do my normalized database. Now it's adding the power of introspection and I don't have to add any more information to my program, right? Mm -hmm. When you talk about simplicity, that is simplicity, right? You're minimizing right. redundancy, right? You're eliminating that, that to a single concept of, well, I've already constructed a tree here. Why am I, why am I now declaring another tree over in a different file that describes the tree I just made? Right. At the, at the, at the, at the worst, what I mentioned a few minutes ago about, you know, you restructure your UI and suddenly your routes change. Well, that's just an alias function, right? That's, that's an, that's a, that's a piece of complexity that popped up because you did a refactoring and there's an easy mm -hmm. solution. For it. There's an easy and simple solution. If you want to support those old bookmarks, well, put in a map that goes from that string to that string before you do your route step. Um, mm -hmm. And, and you're done. It's a simple regex, you know, translation. So I also know you have built-in state machines. Right. So yes, another interesting feature. Uh, so a lot of these things, some of these things I built, um, well, all of these things I built because I needed them. I, I used this to build software for myself. So, so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly dog fooding most of this stuff and anything that I don't use regularly uh, has, has mostly been, deprecated at this point and has fallen off the map. Um, UI state machines came about, uh, I think I was actually listening to a, a talk. What's the, what's the guy's name that uh, maintains reframes? Uh, is it Mike is Thompson? Thompson? Yeah. So I think I was listening to a, a podcast with him and he was talking about how, uh, you know, in reframe, you know, they were largely, I think, replacing, uh, you know, flash apps. They were trying to make these things Correct. large yeah. front end and, and needed to do all these, you know, interesting interactions and things. And he was talking about, how, you know, it'd be really interesting. I really want to explore at some point how to get state machines into this because, you know, there are just some cases where that's just like the right thing for a UI interaction. And, uh, 
and you know, I, I realized that I agreed with them. I was like, yeah, there, there are just some things where like, I don't know, login flows, right? You're just trying to keep track of, you know, is this a user I know about? Are they trying to reset their password? Like this, there's these, this flow that you're trying to do where it's a stateful flow. Um, and you really do need to keep track of where you're at in it, right? So they, they just loaded your page. They have a cookie, right? Um, mm -hmm. You need to go in and send a check session to the server to find out if they're already logged in so you can let them go to the route they're going to. And if not, you need to take them to the login page, right? This is a state machine sort of thing, right? It, it's like the, the perfect scenario for where you want something, keeping track of what step you're on. <laughs> Um, in a way that you can reason over as a unit, right? A, lo a localized unit, right? Not this peppered like this function does a callback to that function and this function's over there. You want this, this state machine. Mm -hmm. So I started looking at the space and, uh, you know, there's all sorts of research out there on, on state machines. Um, you know, there's, there's just the plain finite state machines. There's uh, state charts. There's behavioral state machines. There's it's just, just, you could read for days, easily, months half your life. Um, and you know, my first temptation was to do state charts because state charts, uh, you know, I, I'm sure most people are familiar with the problem of the finite state machines is if you try to model a large-ish system with them, you get the state explosion problem. Um, you get like thousands and thousands of state that represent like each little minutia of, of the thing. And it just becomes unmanageable. People have invented diagramming tools or whatever. So then uh, I forget the guy's name, David something or another, I think that did the research on state charts. Um, we found this way of making hierarchies of them and, and keeping history and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I found that very interesting, but it was also daunting in terms of, I don't want to implement all that. <laughs> right. So the, the question I posed to myself, right? So part of this is me being lazy. And part of it was an honest like engineering question of, is, is it worth it? Is, is state chart really going to buy me enough that it will be worth the effort I'm going to put into that? Maybe I should just start with what would be nice to have for Fulcro specifically? That was the question that I asked myself, right? It's like, instead of like implementing the thing that the research papers say you should implement, right? Well, they don't have my context. So maybe that's not the right answer. Um, so part of it was being lazy and part of it was being just, in my opinion, a good engineer in terms of trying to scope your problem. Right. What, mm -hmm. what do I actually want here? What do I need here? And what's overkill? Um, Cause somebody can always do, if they need state charts, they can always do their own library, right? If that's, that's what they need, they can build it, but maybe I don't need it. So I started looking at it and I started thinking about what you have in a Fulcro UI. You have components on the screen and very often you have a problem like what I was just describing where uh, you've got this login sequence, right? Where you're trying to check the session and then show them the right screen, right? And it's all happening without even any user interaction. You just kind of kind of need to keep track of what's going on and as remote responses happen, do the right thing. And then it occurred to me, well, you probably also want that to be reusable, right? Wouldn't it be nice to have a library of state machines where you could just say, you know, I want the common login flow state machine. Well, but the common login flow state machine is not going to know how you designed your UI, right? It's not going to know what you want to render. Do you want a modal to pop up? Do you want, right? How do you want that to look? Um, right. And so it occurred to me that it might be interesting to say, okay, well, in this state machine model, we'll, we'll make actors, 
and the actors will be UI components. So not actors like ACA actors or, or you know, agents from, from Clojure, but just, just like actors in a story, right? I've got, mm-hmm. I've got the login form and I've got the, you know, whatever. Um, and what I want to be able to do is abstract away where they put their data. So let's throw in this idea of I can make an alias for a particular fact. And since it's a normalized database, I can basically say, you know, actor form uh, is going to have a field that stands for the username. And I'm just going to call it username. And then I can write the rest of the state machine around this idea that there's a username. I can ask for what its value is and I can save a new value to it, but I don't really know where it's stored. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is one abstraction layer that I added to it is let's just throw some actors in there. Now I should be able to, when I start the state machine, say, okay, that component over there, that's your login form. That component over there, that's your change password form. That component, right? <laughs> um, and then you just orchestrate the state management and what state we're in, and I'll figure out how to render it. <laughs> so I just made it this big open map and just started with finite state machines. Let's just let you declare, you know, here's a state, here's some events that will come in. When the event comes in, uh, do this. And so that's all it is. It's really a, a quite basic uh, uh, implementation uh, and is really intended to be for very small state machines. Don't write your application with this. This is not for writing your application. This is for writing a focused element of your application that needs this extra little composition unit, right? I want to I co-locate my reasoning about this thing in one place because I've got all this like, what if what if when they do this, an error happens? What if when they do this, it's okay, right? You get the happy path and the unhappy path and that, right? It gets really hard to trace that through just functions. Uh, and so if you have the state machine where you can say, okay, I'm going to do this task and here's how I want to organize that task. Well, that's that's what I wrote that for. And so it, it's not it's not super fancy. It has a couple of nice features that go around this, this same idea of once I've set the actor, the actor carries its ident because it's a component at runtime and it carries a query. So I can do things like load the actor, right? The UI state machine ha- doesn't need to know anything about, you know, any more than there's going to be an actor that's going to have data that I can load. Um, mm-hmm. And now I can write a reusable thing around that. And I actually leverage that to quite good effect. Um, you know, when we talk about rad at some point, um, yeah. You know, there's a form system in there and I've got one state machine, right? It, it basically, the combination of form state and UI state machines makes it possible for me to automate everything about loading, editing, and saving a form uh, in logic in a completely mm-hmm. reasonable manner. Uh, mm-hmm. Because everything, all the interesting things are co-located on the components and I can abstract them away and just say, okay, you're going to have an actor and it, it's, it's going to have that kind of information on it, right? So there's all sorts of interesting things that you just like to, again, just fall out. This is, this is when you know right. you're on the right track, in my opinion, in a library, when you go to add a feature and instead of like you, you scratch your head and go, oh, this is going to be hard. Instead of that, you go, oh, I've already got that information. I can just do this, blah, 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 done. Um, are there any other namespaces we should explore? I mean, there's quite a bit of them, and I, I'm not sure if all of them. In Cora Fulcrum, those are the primary ones. Those are the ones you're going to use. It's you, you've, you know, components has all the kind of generics for building a component. But if you if you understand query ident, there's some lifecycle stuff, right? Yeah, how do you get the first frame on the screen? Like, how do you get something in your database to start that isn't loaded from a server, right? 
there's things like that, but it's not really something you can talk about very easily in a podcast. It's, it's more mm -hmm. something you go and learn. Right. Um, and then in terms of the other namespaces, there's, there's stuff from essentially kind of manipulating the graph and then doing, like we just talked about, some state management helpers that, that help you reason about how you should do things in Fulcro. Kind of the general shape of how you should do things in Fulcro, not necessarily requiring you to. Like dynamic router, that, that stuff we were talking about, it's not very many lines of code. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of it is very deep. Like it, it's really like, you know, dynamic queries are in there and query traversal and playing with the AST of the query, right? But it's, mm -hmm. it's all the same stuff, right? It's like if, mm -hmm. if you understand EQL and the AST that comes out of it, which is trivial, um, and, and understand you've got a graph there that can be turned into trees, just so much comes out of that. And mm -hmm. when you go and look at an individual algorithm, you might think, oh, I don't quite understand why. What is that? Because it is playing at these kind of low levels, but it's the same simple things over and over again. So once you've been in it a while, you go, oh, I'll just throw the query. I'll turn that into an AST and I'll run through that and I'll find the routers. And there we go. <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's that whole simple versus easy thing. It's not easy to start because you have to learn six or seven concepts and the details of them. Mm -hmm. But I really do feel like it's pretty simple. Thanks again for listening, and in the next part we will talk more about Fulcro. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or any other platform you are listening to. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it, discuss it on your own podcast, and you can support it directly by buying my video courses and learning ClojureScript and Clojure at my website, jacekshe.com. That's J-A-C-E-K-S-C-H-A-E dot com. Thank you for your support of this show.